Hey, it's Gary and Shannon. You're about to embark on yet another great adventure with the Gary and Shannon Show. A reminder, we want you to make sure that you look at the iHeart app and hit the follow button on the Gary and Shannon Show podcast so that you can get updates on what's going on with our podcast. Don't forget to share it as well. Get it? It's adventure music. Also, share it on Facebook, Twitter, wherever you have that opportunity, and tell a friend about what you're listening to when you listen to the Gary and Shannon Show. We have a uh, new, well, actually, we have an old lineup here on KFI. We've changed <laughs> our numbers. Gary and Shannon uh, start from uh, 10 o'clock now. They go 10 to 2. Gary Hoffman. Yeah, this is permanent. Yeah, every day. Yeah, we'll see how that Until, little... Until uh, somebody else has uh, another bright idea. Shannon Farron. My mouth hurts. Yeah. yeah, my ears hurt. Gary and Shannon. So you got to stick around. To normal, it looks like. Gary and Shannon, it's Would Monday, you... August 13th. Would you call this normal? Uh, back to the usual. Is that better? That yes. way we don't, ass- we don't assign a name to it. Yeah, I get, uh, I take issue with being called normal. <laughs> you know, in 2018, what's really normal? Uh, Handel's back from vacation tomorrow, so you'll hear him on the morning show and telling uh, the great stories of uh, life in Africa. I don't know who's with him and capturing these scenes on video, but he keeps peeing or something else behind cars and trees. Like there was one of him with a a roll of toilet paper as he's going behind a tree. Yeah. I mean, God bless the people of Africa for dealing with that man for 10 days. (laughs) We should we should apologize. We really should. Some sort of a national proclamation. (laughs) Uh, We're sorry. When we come in uh, at the the 11 o'clock hour, we're going to do a huge update on all of the fires. Uh, It was a very, very big and productive weekend, I guess you could say, for the fire crews that have been working so hard. Um, And we'll talk about the Holy Fire and the pace uh, at which it slowed down, thankfully. Also in Washington, the FBI has fired that longtime agent Peter Strzok, the one who was sending the text messages about Trump, anti-Trump messages while he was working on the special counsel Bob Mueller's Russia investigation. So he's out. Yeah. Um, But, the man, I got to tell you, the story that I talked to everyone about all weekend long was the story of the guy who stole the airplane from SeaTac Airport and took it on a joyride before he ended up just putting that thing straight down into a into an island out there. Yeah, it's terrifying that somebody would be able to have access to a plane, figure out how to turn it on and take off in that thing. He had worked for the airline for a couple years, three and a half years, and did have full credentials to be near the plane. It's not like he was some stranger who, who just jumped onto the runway. Uh, his his job included handling luggage, cleaning out planes, towing, de-icing, directing them towards runways and gates, but no flight training whatsoever. I uh, We have a friend uh, who happens to be a pilot, um, and I know he's in and out of SeaTac Airport every once in a while, so I wanted a location on that guy as soon as I heard that there had been an incident at SeaTac. He's camping. It has nothing to do with this. But he said he flies 737s most of the time. 
he wouldn't even know how to start the engines on a Q400. He's like, don't come at me with that turboprop. I fly 737s. <laughs> I don't think he said it like that. Bombardier... He didn't have airs about him when no, he said No, no, I know. I would never. <laughs> <laughs> Bombardier Q400, seats 76 people. It was owned by Alaska Airlines uh, subsidiary, uh, Horizon. Ever taken Horizon flight? I have. In fact, that was uh, they had free beer. Really? Yeah, they had complimentary beer and wine on the flight I took. Seattle to Eugene, Oregon. I'm not sure I had that experience. I remember it being a complete 180 because Alaska's great. Mm-hmm. I love Alaska Air. But Horizon, which is owned by Alaska, they are not equals. Hmm. In I've only experience. taken one, so I wouldn't I would I don't know if I could base it on one, but I had a, it was How many uh, free fine. beers did you have? Uh, just one. It was a short flight. Okay. But it was a bomber. It was a 22-ounce. I'm just kidding. No. Um, so the story now is today in Seattle, airline officials are meeting with SeaTac International Airport officials and Port of Seattle officials to figure out, can they prevent this from happening again? They're actually holding a press conference as we speak. Want to dip in a little bit? Sure. That's a 10-year background check, and that badge is renewed every two years. But to make sure we were thinking about all human factors at the operation at this airport, we added employee security screening, physical screening, like you experience when you go through and travel through this airport. We're one of the only airports in the country to do that, and we took that voluntary leap. Why do we do something like that? Because we want to always have this conversation about how to improve, how to work with our partners better, and put security top of mind. So that's what today is about. Some of you asked, when's the meeting happening? It's probably not going to surprise you that our team has been on the phone almost every single minute over the weekend with our airline partners, with the federal authorities, with all of the agencies. But today we start a really serious, significant amount of conversations with those partners. Where do we go from here? There are a couple factors, of course. We still have more facts to uncover. And we want to have a conversation with all the partners about what are the options for improving. We're not waiting. We expect a national-level conversation. We expect the federal government may have some ideas about regulation. But here at SeaTac, we can lead, and that's why we're not waiting, and starting those conversations today. So with that, a couple questions. You're describing systemic failure across airports Listen to a press conference at a SeaTac about the guy that was able to hijack that plane for a 75-minute so joyride. We're really happy that all security protocols were, were taken care of here. We had an aberration. So we need to think about how we improve those protocols. What are the next steps? So there are a couple lines of conversations and some questions that I think everyone is asking. Operationally, can we improve with our airline partners, with our federal agencies, with TSA and FAA? And there are human factors obviously at play here. And so there are additional questions to be asking along those lines. Yeah, I don't want to prejudge that. It's important that, one, we get all the facts on the table. Two, we bring all of the stakeholders into this conversation. Obviously, we've got a local airline here that we are talking with all of the time. But we're having this with national conversation. We've already reached out to some international airports to get all of that expertise brought to bear on both of those types of questions. So although I cannot give you a timeline, I can tell you this team is acting with urgency. Sure. I'm going to have to get back to you on, on how many actual were on duty. Um, but if you understand this, this plane was sitting in an overnight position, was not intended to take off. 
Port of Seattle police are not on the airfield, if that makes sense. So, again, great questions to ask, and we'll get we'll follow up on how many folks were here. Are they You know, uh, our airlines here are being good partners, having a serious conversation about the facts. I think there will be a conversation down the line. What's it mean from a regulatory standpoint? What can we do voluntarily? But we really do think that right now we're in a good, open, transparent, tell us what happened on your end, tell us how we can improve. And I'm really pleased with the partnership with Alaska. Okay, we'll uh, we'll roll on that and uh, get you any of the pertinent information out of it. That was a spokesperson for SeaTac Airfield, I'm ex- airport, I guess, uh, I'm assuming they're talking about what they're going to do. They're not going to wait for the NTSB to give them regulations or, n- or new ideas for protocols and enhancing protocols. They're going to do their own inside look, and that's absolutely what they should do. But you know what? I don't know what you can do. Well, and, and we have to to keep it in perspective. I mean, this was a crazy, amazing, amazing is not the right word, that that adds positivity to it. This was a crazy, fascinating, uh, highly unusual incident. How many tens of thousands of airplanes are there right now accessible to the hundreds of thousands of ground crew workers at airports around the country and it happens. I mean, and it's a, they're available every day, but this doesn't happen. How are you going to know when someone's going to snap? I mean, he passed right. all of his uh, right. all of his background checks or whatever the hell there was. You just don't know. You can't protect against crazy. Unfortunately, you can't limit people's access to these airplanes if they've got duties around them. All right. We'll continue with more on this. Uh, the story about this guy taking the plane from SeaTac Airport, then crashing it into Keytron Island, which is in the middle of nowhere. And they have found human remains, and they have found at least parts of the cockpit voice recorder. Although, when we come back, I'm going to play for you some of his conversation with the air traffic controllers from Friday night. Eerie and dark and comedic at times. And by the way, huge kudos to those air traffic controllers for keeping their S together. And Terror in the Skies, a classic Terror in the Skies to tell you about involving a TSA screener and a penis. Gary Gary and Shannon will continue. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. More drama coming out of Washington this hour. Omarosa has just gone on a full attack of the administration of President Trump, her former friend, her apprentice mentor, if you will. She's released audio of a conversation between the president and herself the day after she was fired by John Kelly. And this is the big headline you're going to see. Omarosa releases audio. It is a whole big bag of nothing. Actually, the president sounds like a pretty nice guy on this audio. He sounds surprised by it. He says, I didn't know anything about it, um, that John Kelly had asked her to step down or to leave, whatever you want to say. Um, and he says, listen, I don't I don't love the fact that you're leaving. And that's it. But that's it. I mean, it, it's probably, what, 40 seconds worth of a conversation between them. We have no idea what happened beforehand. We have no idea what happened after. Uh, she, come on. I, I mean, I don't think anybody was, was holding her up as an example of. The moral uh, high ground. <laughs> right. But uh, this just goes to show that she's had even, uh, she she had less going on in her brain than uh, 
than anybody may have assumed when she was she took a position in the White House. This is a president who is very big into loyalty. Well, they all are really very secretive. I mean, look at the way the Clintons rewired all the phones in the White House when they when they took over. It people are very protective of their of their secrecy and of uh, loyalty, and people are flipping on this guy. Whether it's his lawyer or the woman he gave pretty much her her whole career and fame, uh, it's distasteful. We'll, we'll play because not only is it this one that just came out that, that she released this morning, this conversation with the president, the conversation that she had with John Kelly, um, where he levels what I took almost as a threat to her. But I think it's it's the more I think about it, it wasn't necessarily a threat. It was just a Hey, let's do this quietly and calmly because we're going to win whatever PR war you want to start with us. Right. So anyway, we'll talk more about that. Uh, we've also been uh, been following the story um, of the uh, TSA, the FAA, SeaTac airport officials all meeting today to go over protocols for security, et cetera, after that ground crew worker took a Bombardier Q400 turboprop for a joyride, it sounded like. Um, and then ended up putting the thing in the ground. And at points on Friday night, late Friday night, when we were following the story, you some of the original uh, recordings of the air traffic controller talking to this guy were released in little bits and segments on Twitter. And the full audio is out there. It's only about uh, 11, 12 minutes of the version that you'll see, say, from the uh, Seattle Times, for example. Uh, but they have just... They've captured this guy in such a way that you can clearly tell something is going on. He sounds incredibly manic and calm at the same time. I mean, he's he's definitely there's something going on with him. But the fact that he's able to control this airplane that he's never flown before and put it through some, you know, aerobatics that you might not necessarily expect a plane like that to do. Listen to what one of these. uh the air traffic controller is on here. There's a pilot who comes on also to try to help this guy bring it down safely. Um, let me play this. Blake, I got this whole thing here. Let's see if I can. Uh, let's try to land that airplane safely and not hurt anybody on the ground. All right. Ah, damn it. I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't want to. I was kind of hoping that was going to be it, you know. 99, contact south ramp. Left Papa and uh, right on by four. I guess. After long, I feel like one of my engines is going out or something. Okay, Rich, uh, if you could, you just want to keep that plane right over the water, maybe keep the aircraft nice and low? Uh, no, they're, they're, uh, hmm, we had some issues. We had a ground stop for quite a while here. No one was departing. There's some other traffic that goes in there, but you, you hear the guy, the the pilot or air traffic controller who came on said, listen, we um, we want you to do this safely. And there was one point where he said, hey, off to your left, you can see the airfield for Joint Base Lewis-McChord. And the guy piloting the plane said, I, I don't want to land there. They're going to they're gonna rough me up. They probably got anti-aircraft. They're going to shoot me out of the sky, which they don't have there. But uh, He told ground control he had played enough video games to figure out how to fly the plane. <laughs> I don't... Does this give you a new respect for video games? I know you're really harsh no. on them. <laughs> no, it's not a thing. It's not a thing. But it's odd to hear him cracking jokes and complimenting the air traffic controller, apologizing. This could have been such a disaster. It was our, it was a mitigated disaster, but it, it could have been 
terrible if he was able to take this uh, to the Space Needle or, you know, the, the heavily populated tourist areas uh, there. Or or down I-5, anywhere down through I-5 Tacoma. To, yeah. Just, I mean, this could have been this could have been really bad. And he did land on an island that does have people on it. I mean, there's about 15 or 20 people who live on Keytron Island. He was able to put it down in an area where they weren't going to get hurt. And I don't know if he did that on purpose uh, or if it was just the way it went down. Because he could have put it in the water. Uh, if he had enough control over it, he could have put it somewhere else. The biggest headline is, how can somebody simply take a passenger plane from a major airport without authorization? And the fact of the matter is, you go to the airport, you see all the people working around the planes. They're not all authorized to fly the planes, but they're, they have access to them. There's just no way to vet all of those people day after day after day to check mental stability or see who knows if he if he showed any signs in the morning or whatever it's just one of those things i don't think you can protect against i mean maybe there's something you can do a special airline key or something but the the planes don't have keys it's not like a car right you know you've got to you've got to manipulate several different things in the cockpit to get that thing going how he knew how to do that or the airline gives each pilot a code that they enter in immediately before they take off. Yeah. That says, I'm the pilot. I'm the one who has the code. This is the, I'm the only one who can control this airplane. And I wonder if you can put that in on some of the older planes, like this one. If the technology can even mesh with what's going on in there. I don't know. But it seems like something hard to, to guard against. All right. We'll have to come back. We'll we'll do those uh, the story later about the TSA penis thing. Oh, right. Because we, we're going to get that in there. All right. When we come back, though. Uh, another cold case murder man. We're the we're the cold case killers. Is that um, can I say that? Yeah, it works in a kind of macabre, sensa- we'll, we'll sensationalizing we'll, way. Yeah, we'll figure something. Yeah, but a new cold case to tell you about. Thirty four years ago, DNA has linked some Colorado murders. To an inmate who was serving time in Nevada. We'll tell you his story when we come back. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. I'm a little bit steady, but still a little bit rolling stone. I'm a little bit heaven, but still a little bit flesh and bone. Little foul, little don't know where I am. I'm a little bit holy water, but still Gary and Shannon burning. Following a bunch of stories today. We know that uh, FBI agent Peter Strzok has finally been fired by the FBI, apparently for the uh, anti-Trump text messages that he was sending back in 2016. Uh, Omarosa has released a couple of tapes now, one with the chief of staff, John Kelly, the day that she was fired, and then a phone call that she had with President Trump, apparently the day, one day later. We'll play both of those for you coming up at uh, 1230 when we get into Swamp Watch. And Aretha Franklin, the singer... 76 years old, said to be very, very ill right now in a hospital in Detroit. Coming up in the next hour, we've got an update on the Golden State Killer. Looks like some new charges he'll be facing in another part of California, another one of the areas that he terrorized in the 70s. But right now we wanted to tell you about a cold case from Colorado. Two murder scenes, four bodies. The killings haunted police officers who responded to the scenes because they were so heinous. They occurred six days apart near Denver back in 1984. And on Friday, officials said that they finally got the DNA profile of a man who was already in prison in Nevada on unrelated attempted murder charges. His DNA matched both of these crime scenes. 
disgusting uh, look, gruesome look at the depravity that some people are capable of. Um, these two murder scenes, the mother, father, and a seven-year-old daughter was one of them, was one murder scene. The other was uh, a 50-year-old woman at home eating lunch when she was attacked and killed. Now, in the first scene, the father suffers 16 blows to the top of his head with a hammer and his throat had been cut. The daughter uh, and the mother, the seven-year-old daughter and the mother's skulls were fractured. The daughter had been sexually assaulted. There was another girl who lived through all of this. Thankfully, she was only three, so we can hope that she doesn't remember any of it. But the three-year-old was also sexually assaulted and also hit in the head. Police officers found her clinging to life next to a teddy bear. Uh, And then the second scene was this 50-year-old woman sitting around eating a hamburger at home. Patricia Smith, a devoted grandmother. She had failed to pick up her six-year-old granddaughter, Amber, and four-year-old grandson, Joe, that afternoon, which was completely uncharacteristic of her. This was January 10th, 1984, six days after that family was tortured and, and murdered. And she failed to pick up her grandkids to take them to a home that she had shared with her daughter, Sherry. At 6.15 p.m., her daughter unlocks the front door to their home. And her granddaughter, Amber, remember six-year-old Amber, she runs into the room to find her grand. Where's grandma? And she finds grandma lying on a Winnie the Pooh blanket about three to four feet from the entrance with a pool of blood around her head, and there was a hammer lying on the floor beside her body. Now, around that same time, there was yet another scene. It wasn't a murder, but a woman had been uh, had been attacked in the garage of her home in Aurora, Colorado, and she was left in a coma. That wouldn't be the last fatal hammer attack that winter. The next assault would be the most vicious and deadly. Uh, there was a bunch of uh, the... 27-year-old Bruce Bennett, this is the uh, the father, which was about six days earlier, there were other killings as well. I mean, this guy was connected to uh, a case in Henderson, Nevada. In fact, the one that he was uh, eventually put in jail for. He beat a couple with a wooden axe handle. The Arizona case that he was charged with in 1984, breaking into a man's home and beating him on the head with a 25-pound slab of concrete was dismissed after the conviction in Nevada. So he was sentenced to 8 to 40 years for the murder with the axe handle in Henderson, Nevada. So he's in jail. At the time when these horrific crimes were happening, these hammer attacks happening every few days, investigators did recognize similarities between the murders from the start. But like we hear in so many of these cases from the 60s, 70s, 80s, technology was very limited. There was an investigation connected to these hammer attacks in which more than 500 people were questioned. Imagine that. That is beating the ground there. 500 people brought in for questioning. They were desperate to put an end to this horror. And unfortunately, they were handcuffed with just no technology and not a lot of leads. They never uncovered any leads that could solve the case. The killer seemed to be as the Denver Post writes it, a phantom. This is not police officers being lazy or you know lackadaisical and, and not doing their job. They were doing their job, balls to the wall, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and still couldn't come up with anything. I, uh, the only thing I can think of, I mean, to put myself in a, in a situation like that where you felt that that amount of fear because of an unsolved crime was 
when Polly Class was kidnapped from out of her own bedroom uh, during a slumber party in Petaluma. And I was in college at the time, so I wasn't even physically in the town. But being connected to people and talking with family and friends who were still living in town, there was people were terrified. I was the same age as Polly Class and lived eight miles away. Yeah. I remember it being very scary because it went it went for weeks if i remember correctly the timeline of it yeah. it went for weeks without having been solved i didn't know who the, who this guy was it, there was it, talk of her being a runaway and that didn't fit yeah how could it be possible because the, again the stranger entering a home kidnapping a child so rare but that that was exactly what everything was pointing to and that the because there was no name there was no face there was no murderer anxiety at that point. just grips it's, the community it's unbelievable and in this case you're talking about multiple murders brutal i mean absolutely brutal violent disgusting murders and like you said the word uh, the denver post said the the phantom Detec- no no name nothing detective marvin brant was on the case as a homicide detective from 1984 And he was on it from 1984 until he retired in 2002. We'll tell you about the investigation into this and how they finally got this guy and how this year has really been the year of cold cases. If you uh, if you thought you got away with murder 30 years ago, (laughs) look out. Yeah, the clock is now ticking on YouTube. All right. Gary and Shanna will continue just a moment. Big headline out of Washington is that Omarosa has released recordings, a conversation she had with the president the day after she was fired. She has been making the rounds on all the shows, talking about how racist and mentally unstable the president is, about her time in the White House, and how it is a house built on lies. <laughs> okay. All right. I, uh, from one of the most unreliable narrators we've ever seen come out of the White House. That's it's an interesting... Uh, Way to look at it. At twelve thirty, we'll get into Swamp Watch, and we'll actually play for you her uh, her recordings of not only the president, but also Chief of Staff John Kelly when he fired her. Uh, have you seen this? Also, Rudy Giuliani said this this morning that the president will not sit for a special counsel interview after September first, imposing sort of a artificial deadline on this whole thing. Now, Giuliani says. Robert Mueller told him a couple of months ago he could have the whole inter- uh, he could have the whole investigation wrapped up by September first, but Giuliani's now saying, "Listen, we don't want to have anything to do with uh, with that any any time after September first would be too close to the November election." We're talking about a couple murders and some other attacks that were going on near Denver back in 1984. Uh, the two murder scenes. Two separate scenes, six days apart, left four people dead. This was a guy who attacked a family, a mother and a father and two little girls. Sexually assaulted them and tried to kill all of them. Uh, The three-year-old survived, clutching onto her teddy bear when police arrived. The technology wasn't there to connect the two scenes. They were connected by what the horror was inside of them. Uh, detectives were able to d- decide this was probably the same guy. But the technology wasn't there to get a name on him. They did more than 500 interviews with people. And 
they went to to such great lengths, like uh, removing part of the concrete garage floor to preserve a shoe print. Um, a laser was used to get fingerprints from inside the home. These were things that just kind of were not done. Aurora police detective Marvin Brandt worked the case from 1984 until he retired in 2002. In 2002, that's when detectives in Aurora, Colorado, sent DNA collected at the family's house. The DNA that was linked to the killer from the family's house to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation for testing. That same year, the DA was able to get a John Doe arrest warrant in the Bennett killings, the family, based on the DNA. I love that. I love that John Doe warrant. Yeah. Where, where you indict the DNA profile of somebody and you, you basically you fill in the name later. That's what they did with this. They 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 charged the DNA with 18 counts, including three counts of first-degree murder, two counts of sexual assault, first-degree assault, two counts of sexual assault on a child, and burglary. Now, what I found interesting was that it wasn't until 2010, they they assumed that these cases, the, the, the family in one place and then the, the woman eating her hamburger, the 50-year-old woman, um, they, they figured that they were connected just if nothing else, because of the timing of it. But it wasn't until 2010. Remember, these happened in 1984. It wasn't until 2010 that they got a definitive DNA link that established those two cases. So the break in the Colorado murders began after Nevada mandated the collection of DNA samples from all inmates convicted of felonies. Now, that only happened in 2013. This guy had been in prison since 1984. But a previous state law applied only to those individuals convicted of a felony after 1997. So while this thing is making its way through the courts, it wasn't until two years ago that the Nevada attorney general issued an an opinion to clarify. The rule applies retroactively to every felon in the state of Nevada, regardless of when they were convicted. So that begins, this is a weird and gross way to put it, a massive harvesting of DNA from all of these Nevada inmates. It wasn't in, it wasn't immediately clear when his sample was collected, but it was July 11th, just about a month ago, that Lakewood detectives were told that the national database linked this guy's DNA to the DNA that was found at those two murder scenes. We're going to be talking about it later in the show, but it certainly seems like this is the year, this is the time that investigators are working overtime to use this new technology to go after these guys and all of these cold cases. We will tell you about them when when the law catches up to these guys. Also coming up in the show, how the greatest generation gave rise to the golden age of serial killers. It seems like there were a couple decades when this was very popular. And it's probably because the technology wasn't there. So you were able to get out, get away with crime after crime after crime. Not anymore. Catching up to you before. I wonder if there was also a sense of un, unnecessary trust or uh, unearned trust, even among yes. strangers, you know. I think it's different, much different now. We always look. Very few people are are opening their homes to some traveler. No, uh, uh, sir. I just need two nights rest, and right. I will not eat much. Two and, fortnights. Right. Uh, I don't two trust fortnights. anybody. You know. I mean, we are a very cynical <laughs> society. 
Uh, and I don't think that it was the case like that uh, 30, 40 years ago. So anyway, we'll do that a little bit later in the show. All right. When we come back, we're going to do a couple of things. Number one, an update on the uh, the fires, the holy fire burning in the Cleveland National Forest and also the other California fires, including the Mendocino Complex. Remember, it used to be two fires. It's still two fires. But one of those, one of those two fires is now the largest single fire in the state of California. Also, some criminals using that movie Ocean's Eleven to get into your house. We'll tell you all about that, too, when we come back to oh. Gary and Shannon. You can be cool. You can be shy. Say what you want. Say what you like. Cause ooh, your body talks. Your body talks. Ooh, your body talks. You can be sad. You don't want to know. But have you the signs of your head to your toes? Yeah, you don't need to say your what Cause ooh, ooh, your body talks. Gary and Shannon. Hey, if I am 640, a packed show to tell you all about. We've got Market Mondays coming up with Rebecca Jarvis. Some shakeups at Netflix, possibly at Tesla as well. We've got new evacuations in force today as the firefighters continue to battle the holy fire there in the Lake Elsinore Corona area. Coming up next, we're going to tell you all about the new development for the Golden State Killer. Looks like he's facing new charges in another part of California. Yeah, the numbers from the Holy Fire right now, 22,714 acres, 52% containment up in the Lake Elsinore, Corona area. Uh, it, was a, it was a tense weekend. We saw, I believe it was Thursday night into Friday, this thing almost double in size. It went from about uh, 10,000 acres to close to 20. And it was, unfortunately, it looked like it was going to make this weekend very, very difficult. Now, the thing is... Uh, the weather has been mostly cooperative. The firefighters have been kicking some uh, fire ass and are doing an absolutely spectacular job out there. Uh, the The problem, I think, with this one is that uh, there's a guy accused of starting it. And uh, there are many issues going on with this guy. Uh, I was watching the arraignment. He originally did not want to show anyone his face. Okay. Remember, this is the guy that they that somebody happened to interview because his was one of a few cabins that was still standing in that holy Jim Canyon area, Tribuco Canyon area. The this guy was a, uh, I think the clinical term was cuckoo pants. He's cuckoo pants in the interview. He took off his clothes in front of reporters. And he was, All he was of shirtless them. and they down to his boxers and they got rid of the boxers. I mean, clearly this guy is dealing with some issues. Yeah. So he finally showed up in court. Initially, he refused to face the judge. And they were asking, in fact, his attorneys were asking, can we do this without him here? Seriously. Can his presence be waived? And the judge ordered that the defendant appear uh, because of the seriousness of the charges. So. Just to give you a flavor of what this guy, what the what the court commissioner and the uh, this guy brought to the table that day. Clark, uh, birthday twelve twenty nine sixty six. Is that your birthday, Mister Clark? December twenty ninth sixty six. Okay, now he's uh, again originally didn't want to show his face to anybody because he was afraid of retaliation, and then at that moment he looks over his lawyer's shoulder from behind the cage and stares directly into the camera. That's feeding the video of, of this and then answers the question. All right. He's declining. Yay. Pardon? Yay. Yay. Okay. Thank you, sir. Um, Yay. And uh, Yay. Mr. Yay. Clark is charged Let's in several you. counts involving arson, aggravated arson. Uh, a lie. Criminal uh, threats. These are just allegations, sir, and resisting. Correct. Ms. Parnas, you wish to continue the arraignment? Yes. Correct. I mean, he's answering questions. 
the first thing the lawyers tell you, uh, you know, the first thing they tell you when you go to court like that, shut up. I'll answer the questions. Unless the court asks you directly something like, is that how you say your name? That's the only thing that you're going to answer. Court commissioner postponed his arraignment until this week and ordered bail to remain at $1 million. My favorite part is when he shouted that he could easily afford it, saying, I can handle a million right now easily. <laughs> okay. Feel free to pony that up then, buddy. Sure, it's going to happen. Uh, the This guy, assuming that he did it, I mean, the, assuming that they have more than just people who were afraid of this guy, they are going to put him in jail for the rest of his life. I just think that you can't have a fire that that large, that destructive, and not be in jail for the rest of your life. So, Well, if he doesn't have priors, this is California, Hoff. Yeah, why do you very seldom fun out of my criminal justice dreams? Very seldom do you get a maximum penalty for something if you don't have priors, even uh, if you do have priors in California. This is the this is a state of second and third and fourth chances. Um, we've told you about the Mendocino complex fires as well. This is uh, the largest fire burning in the state, and it's two fires that make up the complex: the Ranch Fire and the River Fire. And the ranch fire now is, uh, by itself, the ranch fire is the largest fire in the state of California at 279,000 acres in the history, I should say. The river fire is almost 50,000. So when you combine them, the Mendocino complex, you get 328,000 acres and change, total containment of about 67%. And right now they're working on 140 homes that have been damaged. Um, uh, amazingly, as as large as this is, no civilian injuries or fatalities, and only two relatively minor firefighter injuries. I'm looking at the website for the retirement community in Corona, I believe, technically. Uh, that has been placed under voluntary evacuation, a retirement community. That would cause a little bit of concern, I would think. Um, and it says, good morning, Trilogy residents. The trilogy at Glen Ivy is still under a voluntary evacuation order. Thank you to all of you who attended the impromptu meeting last night. <laughs> Could you imagine that? Uh, we apologize to those that were not able attend, uh, do, uh, able to attend due to limited space. Uh, unfortunately, management was only given one hour to prepare, and the Tahoe the Tahoe room was our best option at the time. It's so funny that it's like the bistro will be closed today. <laughs> so. Sorry, uh, we can't play bingo tonight, and we're going right. to have to push back the start time for grumpy old men right. because we have important fire news to tell you. White about. wine spritzers will still Nuh-uh. be available on the veranda. <laughs> I can't wait. You just made your own. Uh, Got to get me in there. <laughs> you just made your own brochure for your retirement home. Uh, all right, so the the fire updates are, are as we uh, say, uh, under control, but. You think about this. We're halfway through. We're not even halfway through August. We haven't reached peak Santa Ana winds no, we're season yet. We're all screwed. September and October are going to be ridiculous. And remember, the most destructive fire that we saw last year was a December fire. So this, you know, the idea that maybe we're on the we're on the downside of all of the fires that are currently burning in the state of California, we're getting the resources that we need, we have thousands and thousands of men and women who are fighting the fires. 
It does not mean that we are done by any means. Oh, and it's just going to get worse. I was reading a stat over the weekend out of the five hottest years on record, and we've had the last, the, the top four or four of the four of the five hottest years on record have been the past four years. So this is just going to be what happens. I'm not going to say the new normal. Don't look at me like that. Okay, just waiting for it. To talk about the Maillard reaction or something like that. Uh, when we come back, we're going to get into the story about um, the Golden State Killer. Um, it, this is one of those stories that I think is we're just going to have constant news about for the next several weeks and months. And we will stay on top of it. This is the murder of a man in Visalia back in 1975. This was all about the night that a man in a mask broke into a little girl's bedroom in the night. We'll tell you about it and the charges and how they were able to connect him to this crime when we come back. Gary and Shannon will continue in just a moment. Love that pause. Love it. Gary and Shannon, Monday, August 13th. A bunch of stories that we are uh, following include the, the latest recordings that Omarosa has put out there. Boy, is she going to sell some books. <laughs> she uh, has a couple of recordings, including, she said, a phone call with the president about a day after she was let go from the White House by the uh, chief of staff, John Kelly. Uh, also, FBI agent Peter Strzok has finally been fired, apparently for those uh, anti-Trump text messages that he sent. And uh, despite his uh, showmanship, showboating, whatever you want to call it, when he was on Capitol Hill testifying before Congress, they finally let him go. There was an HR investigation that went back and forth. And finally, somebody uh, at the high levels of the FBI said, hey, this is just getting it's it's worse than it. Firing him is the best option here. Also, if you think you've stopped Google from storing your location by turning off that location history setting, uh, you're wrong. The Associated Press has done a big investigation and found that Google is still keeping a record of your movements. We'll talk about that coming up at noon when we get you up to speed on all the stories people are talking about now. Just today and just a few minutes ago in Tulare County, they held a news conference that made it official. They are charging Joseph D'Angelo, Golden State Killer, Hysteria Rapist, Visalia Ransacker, whichever title you want to ascribe to this guy. They're charging him with a murder of Claude Snelling in Visalia back in 1975. This is a story that is a particularly heartbreaking story that... It It's frustrating to me to see because of the basics of it. I mean, I mean it this way. September 1975, Elizabeth Hupp is 17 years old. And she said a masked gunman broke into her bedroom in the middle of the night, threatened her, drags her out to the carport. She says, that's when I heard my dad yell. And the man with a ski mask pushed me to the ground, turned and shot my dad twice as he was coming through the back door. Dad died on the way to the hospital. She said, he's always been my hero. I would not be here today, I'm sure of it, if it hadn't been for him. Now, listen, I'm not a girl. I like to think that my daughter would see me as a heroic figure in the event that something ever happened to her. 
And I think that that's probably a, a fantastic role that, uh, unfortunately, men have to play in the lives of their children at some point. This guy obviously doing it to the nth degree. And when the district attorney in Tulare County announced it this morning, announced these charges, he referenced that aspect of this case. He referenced the idea that this was a father trying to protect the life of his daughter and, in effect, giving up his own life to do so. We have officially linked the Visalia Ransacker to be the same individual that is known as the East Area Rapist and, tragically, the Golden State Killer. Here in Visalia, it seemed that the murder of Mr. Snelling touched a a really compassionate uh, and uh, brought sorrow from not only the victim's family, but from a community and and this town and this county and the surrounding area. Because at its core, aside from everything else, Mr. Snelling died trying to save his daughter from an intruder inside their home in the early morning hours. And in doing so, they said that the he saved his teenage. Sorry, they said that they were not able to directly link the Claude Snelling murder by DNA. There was no there was no DNA left at the scene in that case. But they know that the gun that he used was the same firearm that was taken from one of the ransacker burglaries that they attributed to this guy. So they that's how they linked him to this case. Could be the first murder victim of the Golden State Killer, as we said. Uh, just a little refresher course. This was a guy who terrorized California in the 70s and 80s, committing at least 12 other murders, more than 50 rapes in California counties. It seemed in the Sacramento area where he was carrying out most of his rapes, it was like a new one every couple of days. You know, it would be uh, five or six or eight rapes a month. This was truly a paralyzed community. He was arrested in April using that reverse DNA technology that we've told you about. Now, they're saying that he's not directly linked to this murder by DNA, but they can also they can also prove it in other ways. Um, what I think is interesting is we've, we asked this question before, and we actually referred to it the Skid Row Stabber case. If, if something happens... And the crimes in that area stop. You know, the, the, the question of uh, did the Skid Row stabber do it or, you know, it doesn't have to be that case, but any other case. You arrest somebody for a series of murders. Family and friends say, gosh, it would never be Bob. Bob wouldn't do that. And then you look and realize all of the murders stop the moment Bob was taken off the street. That's a strong indicator. Not not definitive. I'm not being crazy about it. But it's a strong indicator that probably the police got the right guy. In this case, this happened this Claude Snelling murder happened just a few months before the Visalia ransacker stopped and what stopped him was he almost got shot and killed by a police detective who was trying to arrest him he managed to escape because he fired a gun at the detective the detective was trying to arrest him and after that Visalia Ransacker goes, you know what? I'm out of here. I, I'm get, It's getting too hot. Yeah, I'm going to become a rapist in, in Sacramento. Because right. that's when he went on to commit all those rapes. Yeah, Chapter 2 became the East Area Rape. One of the things I think is fascinating about the Golden State Killer is that he stopped in 1986, allegedly. But the last known murder was down in Orange County in 1986. And I've got to believe that he stayed up to date on 
all the news surrounding forensic technology because it was 1986 when headway was was starting to get made in this field and i wonder if he knew or he thought that technology would one day catch up to him because remember he was a former police officer so he knew all the police techniques he knew the tactics he knew how investigations were carried out what to do what not to, yeah, all of it and i just wonder if he knew there would be a day when the technology would advance to the point where he would be caught for all of these rapes and murders. I wonder if it also had something to do with his age. You know, I mean, one of the one of the aspects of so many of his murders and rapes were physical domination. And I wonder if there was a point where he didn't feel like he could do that part of it anymore. As well as that, you know, factoring into his idea, ah, you know, technology starting to catch up with me and I just got to put it, put the kibosh on my activity. How old was he in 1986? Uh, was he in his 40s question. by then? Um, he was born in 45, right? Yeah. So, who so yeah, he would have been well 40s. into his 40s. Hmm. Why are you looking at me? You're well, saying I'm not physically capable of doing the things I could do when I was in my 20s and 30s? No, I would never insinuate that. Got it. Right. Coming up next, looks like burglars these days are using Ocean's Eleven to get into your homes. We'll tell you about it. Oh, great. Sounds great. Thanks, George. Uh, Gary and Shannon will continue. Give me like a expensive signed baseball has just been sold. Who signed it? Who do you oh, think? Oh, this is the Yankees, right? It is signed by 11 members, Hall of Famers that attended the first Baseball Hall of Fame ceremony in 1939. Oh, wow. Babe Ruth, Cy Young, Ty Cobb. Uh, I'm assuming Honus Wagner was on there. Yeah, Honus Wagner, Walter Johnson, Connie Mack. Wow. <clears throat> and it sold for, you want to take a guess? Take three, a, three million. No. No, it's cheaper. Two, two million, really? 623 grand. That's it? It's a baseball. Watch your mouth. You better watch it. It's not like it's a football. I've been listening through some of the... <laughs> <laughs> been listening through some of the Omarosa tapes, and at twelve thirty, about an hour from now, when we get into the uh, Swamp Watch section of the show, she was she was dealt with very nicely. Uh, and to be fired by a guy like John Kelly, uh, him explaining the way this is going to go down, and the nice gentleman from personnel is going to be in here in a few minutes, well, and he's going to tell you how to do this. What did she offer to the administration? I mean, I really think Clear. that she was just brought in there because as the, one of Trump's friends and an, a, an appearance of diversity. Right. That's exactly why. You know, she wasn't a legit aide to the president. That, I think you're exactly correct. And then it, when it turns out that she's, uh, you know, she she doesn't have anything to offer the White House, then they go, well, you know. Second well, what, thought. Well, what was the problem? Wasn't there some sort of drama that 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 ended with her being dismissed? It yeah. wasn't just that she wasn't 
adding anything. I think she was getting mouthy. I think she was, like, starting to spill secrets when she wasn't supposed to. Okay. Yeah, I'll look into it before Um, uh, Swamp Watch. So everybody remembers Ocean's Eleven, right? Uh, It's and 12 and 13. High-tech. High-tech burglary ring. In that case, it was to take down a, uh, a casino boss. Back then, it had to be a sophisticated operation, but not anymore. There was a produce dealer by the name of Mike Longo, lived in Long Island. And his phone rings in the middle of the night back in July 2010. And he knows as soon as you hear that ring, as soon as anybody hears the phone ringing at 3 in the morning, it's probably not great news on the other end. Yeah. And he said, yes, uh, it was not good news. He realized when he answered that phone that his business, Aero Produce, had been burglarized. And it looked like about 150 grand worth of cash and property were missing. He said it was everything he worked for his entire life. He thought it was an inside job when they gave him the details because everything was so precise. They were able to enter the warehouse during a a certain amount of downtime. They were able to disarm an alarm system. It was not an inside job. It was, as it turns out, a prolific high-tech burglary crew that had hit more than 50 businesses in Long Island over five years, getting their hands on estimated stolen goods to the tune of $10 million. So this crew is made up of nine people, at least the people that they had charged. Guilt, they had pleaded guilty to state and federal charges, including burglary, interstate transportation, stolen property. So you got a ringleader, uh, a guy named Nikitas Margielis, serving a 10-year prison sentence. And, and here's where he's probably the most important player in the whole team, uh, New York City police detective, Rafael Astacio. He admitted supplying inside information to the crew members and helping them stay out of the watchful eye of the New York Police Department. So he, a former detective, I should say, is now serving a six-year prison sentence. But this this is... Wasn't it Rafael who uh, brought down the Newton Division in the LAPD? Uh, Rafael Perez. Yeah. (laughs) If you have a police officer whose name is Rafael, (laughs) you might want to take a second look. Now, if this is, according to security experts, this is really the wave of the future because... If you just do some basic, basic online homework, let's say, for example, someone wants to date my daughter and I bring a name to Shannon, she will go and do the deep dive into that person's social media existence. All I need is a first name, a school, and a city that they've been in in the past 10 years. First name. But I mean, the amount of information that you can find out about that person um, is. Incredible. It's almost frightening. It really is. Because you can find out stuff like uh, how much how much your home is worth, whether or not you are back, uh, you know, you're in arrears, your mortgage situation, how many cars you have, how much work you've done on your home. All of this family and that's not even the personal stuff that you get from social media. Right. That's just the basics of uh, just some basic online homework. A guy by the name of Don Aviv did an interview with CNBC. Don is a security expert, a president of a security consulting firm in New York. And he says we are screwed moving into the future when it comes to burglaries, home burglaries. And he says to stop this, to stop from you from becoming a target You need to take the approach that the criminals are taking uh, when it comes to low-tech and high-tech protection. He said on the low-tech end, the first step is to think like a burglar. Look outside your house. How would you gain entry? Test your home. 
to see if it's easy to get into any of the points of ingress. Oh, I love that word. You want me to work in egress? Because I'll do if that. You can, yeah. Once you once you break in and you take this stuff, you have to find a point of egress. <laughs> you want to take a look at your home and those points of ingress and egress and make the burglar say, I need to move on to somewhere that's easier. This one is just too much of a challenge. Do you guys have a spare key? Yes. Uh, don't tell me where it is. Um, but it's not at the house. Oh. That's smart. Yes. Because if, if, if it was and you just said that mm-hmm. on the radio, at least nobody knows that it's there. Right. Uh, we, we've had discussions about because, you know, we got kids and teenagers that come and go at certain times, whatever it is. And we don't do the spare key thing. Like if you don't get if, if you don't have the key, you either have to wait for someone else to get home or call because. So it's not under the gnome. There is no gnome anymore. Oh. Yeah, the gnome is gone. What happened to the gnome? We learned that it usually signifies that this is the house of swingers. What? You haven't heard this before? I have several we gnomes. Had, we had to remove the gnome. We had to remove the gnome. That is not a, a real thing. Gnomes are completely innocuous, wonderful little creatures that welcome people into the home. Exactly. I can't wait to tell my friends exactly. they have gnomes everywhere. Yeah. My aunt and uncle <laughs> have several gnomes in their backyard. Uh-huh. No, backyard is okay. Oh, it's front just yard. right. Like right front on the front stoop. It's like, hey, come on in. There's a bowl to put your keys in. I'm here for the. Yeah. Yeah. I think my mom has one. I'm here oh. for the flick and tickle. Uh, now, this guy also says, do not put the key under the under the mat. Don't put well, it under I, I'm the. I'm sorry. If you put a spare key under your pot. mat, you deserve to be burglared. <laughs> Burgled. Burgled. Um, and then finally, and this is Flicked a key. and tickled and burgled. <laughs> The key is security cameras, he says. And, by the way, let everyone know you have security cameras. You have security cameras? I do. We do, too. Just having them up doesn't do anything other than provide footage for the police after you've been burgled. If you tell them, oh, by the way, smile for the camera, then there's at least some deterrent there. One of my friends, she has security cameras inside her house. Mm-mm. And I didn't realize this. I went to go stay with her, and I'm in the kitchen, and I'm making coffee, and I look up, and I'm like, is that a freaking camera? Like, what What are we doing here? I don't want to be filmed inside the home. Did you leave? Uh, and then she was telling me, I, I don't know if she'd okay this on the air, but she was saying later to me, just in a conversation, yeah, I was, I was reviewing security footage from the house. She's like, I really need to go on a diet or something like that. Well, and I'm thinking, she, rev- she goes through that footage. For what? I don't know. But they were. What did you see before you saw the camera there, Shannon? Yeah. They were moving in and they did have like a bunch of people, I think, coming in and out. So maybe. Like construction guys? Yeah. So I think maybe that's why. At least you didn't say you needed to lose weight. That's good. It may have been that, actually. (laughs) That may have been what it is. Uh, I don't think you're allowed to even look at the donuts now. (laughs) When we come back, one way to get people back to church beer. This may work. <laughs> Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. Gary and Shannon, still going through some of this Omarosa stuff. At 1230, when we get into Swamp Watch, 
play for you the two big recordings that everybody's been talking about with Omarosa. One of them was her meeting with Chief, um, Chief of Staff John Kelly, General John Kelly. And in all honesty, he's very clear with her. Listen, uh, you screwed up, and we're going to do this quietly, and we don't have to be a lot of, there doesn't have to be a lot of trouble. Uh, I would not want to be on the receiving end of that. The other one was the phone call with the president the day after she got fired from the White House. Peter Strzok, that FBI agent that was sending mean uh, text messages about Trump, he is out at the FBI. Also in Florida, prosecutors have decided to charge a white guy uh, who killed an unarmed black man. It was a videotape shooting in a store parking lot, and he claimed it was the stand-your-ground law, and uh, prosecutors say it is manslaughter. So we'll talk about that coming up after the top of the hour. Greater Purpose Community Church in Santa Cruz. That sounds like a nice place. Okay. Santa Cruz is not the place I would... I would necessarily think of as being the most biblically-minded place in the state. Churches are everywhere. True. These people live in the hills. There are different churches for everybody, too. I mean, talk about your gender-bred person. There is a gender-bred church diagram somewhere. (laughs) Somewhere. Uh, The pastor is a guy named Chris Van Hall. And he said, and I think this is probably a common thread among uh, current churches in the United States, is pushing back against the, the building campaigns that for them according to pastor chris church is a community it's a movement it's not brick and mortar so they sold the building uh and looked for a new place and landed at a food lounge so every sunday parishioners join there to pray listen and drink beer this is one of those community space that has a bunch of beer taps. Have you ever been to one of these food lounge places? No. Pretty cool. I went to one up in Denver. It's kind of like um, almost like converted office space where you walk in and there's a number of different food options. They they have a lot these a lot in Europe in the big cities, and it seems like more uh, city bigger cities here are now adopting this. It's like, you know, Grand Central Market, but upscale, you know, and, and every every different food thing is divided by a really beautiful interior design motifs. You know, you could have ice cream over in the corner and then there's a wine bar right next to it. And then over to the left of that are farm to table burgers and all these different things that you can get. So if you want to meet friends or whatever for for lunch or a drink or something, you can go and everyone goes and gets whatever they want and you can meet at the communal table. It's pretty cool. Um, in, in To expand that into this faith world, he's saying there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't drink alcohol in a responsible manner. That's true. That is it's, not it, in the Bible. It only talks about don't be a drunkard. It talks about wine a lot in the Bible as I, well. There's a reason why that was the first miracle. Yes. Uh, I think everybody appreciates there that. There is. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, why not serve beer when you're reading Bible verses? Uh, and the food lounge owner, uh, Andrea Mullenauer, says, I thought it was genius. He says, everybody can drink responsibly if you want to, glass of wine or beer in a comfortable atmosphere. People can not only listen to a progressive take on theology, but can also engage in conversation. Now, their website also refers to them working towards converting an old bookstore in downtown Santa Cruz into a brewery. Yeah, Old Logos Bookstore. They will have church services there on Sundays before opening up to the public. He says, we don't want to dupe anyone. We don't want to have this bar say, okay, come in, and boom, you get a church service. He says, we don't want that. 
It should be about a year, just in time for summer of next year, when new members can pray with a pint. He says they can have one or two. And he says, as a matter of fact, if they have two, my sermon's better. My dad actually goes to a uh, Bible study once a month that's called, like, Bibles and Beers. Oh, that's where He perfect. goes to a local brewery, and a, a local pastor, she comes in, and she leads. It's like a very— Hold on. You're, you're, you're ruining my mind here, right? Continue. So, so he's drinking while he's having Bible study, and it's a woman pastor? Yeah. Gary. I'm just saying. And she's I'm on the playing, city council. I'm playing the part of 1970s church guy. Okay. But yeah, she uh so she leads it and it's like a pretty basic lesson Don't and they make all me use your given name again. Bible and um well, tell your dad about this one cuz they have a discussion group for people of all religious, political and social affiliations That's to dangerous. to engage in respectful dialogue over craft beer/wine or non-alcoholic beverages you choose every second Sunday of the month, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the food lounge. Uh where everything is uh, hey, everyone's welcome. We just can't yell at each other. There has been a push now because I think there's a realization that on the uh, the on television, even on radio, and I'll admit that we we fall prey to this sometimes. The louder you yell at the other side, the more coverage you're going to get. the The least amount of change you're going to make, but the louder you yell, the more it goes. By the way, I got a phone call the other day from some political candidate. Uh, hey, this is Kevin. I'm calling on behalf of political candidate A. Uh, can we trust that you are going to vote for candidate A in the no. upcoming election? And I said, nah, I, I tend not to vote that way. Oh, okay, well, thank you. Wait, wait, Kevin, is that it? Yes. You didn't even try to change my mind. I know, we're just looking for supporters today. Oh. Well, I'm here if you want to talk to I'd me. i fire that guy. <laughs> like that. How do you... You had a live one. You I'm had a live was, one on the line. I'm assuming it was just a fundraising call. Yeah, I don't like, answer the phone. Yeah. I don't answer the phone. <laughs> I That's know. the takeaway. I've tried to call. Coming up next, everything everyone's talking about everywhere. It's What's Happening with Gary and Shannon. Shannon. Why are you shaking your head? Uh, I'm just watching the the president's at Fort Drum, New York right now. And I don't know if you saw earlier, but they did sort of a, an exercise behind him while he was standing there. And they brought in guys that were rappelling out of helicopters and then laying down. And then uh, the bigger helicopters would come in with the dual rotor blades and, and drop a giant gun down. And it was pretty spectacular. And he was just hanging out. He's loving the show, man. Just loving it. He's actually there to um, to sign a new defense bill. Does he ask for these showings of military strength? Because I don't remember other presidents having, you know, air shows going on behind them before press conferences. <laughs> they have. But you're right. I think just it just seemed a little bit odd. Uh, and don't forget, you got to be in New York in November. Is it November for the parade? You going to be there? Did I say New York? What parade? Washington. The military parade. Oh, right. Yeah. Where is it going to be? I think it's D.C. This is the North Korea event we have coming up. <laughs> exactly. Uh, anyway, so that's what's going on. There's some other stuff, too. We have uh, the Holy Jim Fire, which is, sorry, the Holy Fire, which has now reached uh, 22,000 acres, but the containment numbers continue to go up, so that is good news. But it brings me to this question. 
What else is going on? Time for What's Happening. It will be Veterans Day in Washington when we have the grand, big, huge military showing. (laughs) Uh, Well, every day at this time, we go through the stories that have been trending most in uh, local media, on social media, wherever it is. And there was one now we know the pilot who died in a small plane crash in Silmar has been identified as a longtime Disney Imagineer. Scott Watson. He... Ride, uh, he programmed rides at Disney parks around the world, sounds married like with an uh, incredible job, by the three way. adult children. That sounds like a very cool job. Um, but he was on that small plane. It crashed close to where the 5 and the 405 come together there in Silmar. And I guess a bunch of people who saw this plane crash all ran to uh, where it went down and were able to pull him out of the wreckage. But there wasn't much that he could do. He died at the scene. They're not, also not quite sure where he was going to or coming from because it's not too far away from Van Nuys Airport. Whiteman Airport is also not too far away in Pacoima, so they're not sure if he was going to try to make it to one of those before the, the plane lost power for some reason. Hey, remember that road rage fight over a parking spot at that Circle A convenience store in Clearwater, Florida? It was a white guy who shot a black man. What happened was the black guy pulls up, parks. He's with his girlfriend, his three kids, and he parked in a handicapped spot. He gets out. The white guy pulls up. What's the deal? Why are you parking in this spot? There's an altercation. Uh, black guy shoves the white guy to the floor. White guy takes out the gun, shoots the black guy in the chest, claiming stand your ground law made very famous in the Trayvon Martin case. Prosecutors today say it was manslaughter. And they filed charges against him. Which is interesting because the original news conference, they said that they weren't going to charge this guy. Right. That, they, that the it, surveillance video made it look like he was protecting himself. Yes. But they didn't factor into this. And I don't. I mean, the individual case itself shouldn't necessarily rely on former th- um, incidents. But this guy liked showing his gun off to people. This guy liked being the guy who would drive down the road. Uh, you cut him off, and he just, oh, happens to hold his 9 millimeter outside the driver's window when he passes you, letting you know who this guy was. It may be more about that. Who knows? Uh, but he did get his his ass handed to him by this guy. I mean, the guy who pushed him down, Marquise McLaughlin, leveled him with a push, two-handed push to the chest and knocked the guy backwards. When he was shot, though, it looked to me like Marquise was walking backwards, like he wasn't approaching the guy. Google is under fire today because there was an investigation done by the Associated Press that shows that Google services on Androids and iPhones store your location data even when you're using a privacy setting that says it will prevent Google from doing so. Uh, Google's support page on the subject says you can turn off location history at any time with location history off, the places you go are no longer stored. That's not true. Some Google apps automatically store timestamp location data without asking. (laughs) Great. So if somebody gets in there, not only are they going to find out where you park, they're going to find out where you live, where you travel, uh, and every little spot in between. Work out a nice timeline there Yeah. to do some damage. Um, If you have not heard Brian Suit's story about this, this, uh, I guess you could say a bad incident up in Lancaster... Last night on the Super Hyper Local show, 
He explained that he had actually been to this Winco Foods grocery store outside West Avenue, sorry, alongside West Avenue K there in Lancaster. Um, it turned out that a strong smell was coming from outside of the building on Saturday afternoon. And a manager at the grocery store calls a plumber because he thinks it's sewage or something that's leaking out of the stone pillar in the front of the store. When the plumber starts knocking away part of the stone. Oops, there's a body. I'm out. It all started Monday. A man was pulled over by deputies because he was suspected of driving a stolen vehicle. He ran into the Winco Foods, went onto the rooftop as he ran away from the cops. They never got a hold of him. Yeah, because he found the secret hatch. It's a rooftop access to the inside of those stone pillars. So he fell into the pillar or he climbed into the pillar to hide from cops. Yeah. But with the recent heat wave, it's 145 in Lancaster. And the thickness of this pillar, it it looks like he got trapped inside there and ran out of air. That has a that is a bad way to go. That's why you don't run from the cops in a stolen vehicle. You don't want to end up like the man in the pillar. Well, here's a question. Was there no canine unit available? The dog would have found him. You think so through the thickness of well, the concrete if, if pillar? If the dog's, you know, uh, maybe if they went up to the roof, uh, opened up the hatch and the, the dog, dog hits smelled. on the ladder and they go, "Oh, he must have taken the ladder. We'll bring the dog upstairs with us. Yeah. We go to the roof, find out where he is there. Oh, you know what? He's there's a hatch here that the dog keeps hitting on. Let's lift open the hatch." Or the cops knew about the hatch, knew about the pillar and just decided, "Hey, let God sort it out." Could you imagine being that plumber though? No. And you're chipping away at the rock. You know what? Plumbers find a lot of bad stuff. Uh, a lot not, of bad crap. Not bodies, that's for sure. Mm-mm. And that, by the way, decomposing human mm. and sewer and heat are different things. They smell very different. Both not good. No, um, but I I think that if you would if you would say you've ever smelled a decomposed body, it's one it's a it's a thing you don't forget. You don't mistake it. Do you for remember else. your first one? Absolutely, Seward Park, mm. Seattle. Absolutely, mine was Hooker Oak Park, mm. Chico. Really? Mm-hmm. No, they. Uh, why do they call it Hooker Oak? You know, I did a deep dive on that one time, and it was not as satisfying as I had hoped for. Uh, and the other story that's uh, getting a lot of trending today, a lot of uh, shares and likes, not likes, but shares. Aretha Franklin is apparently gravely ill. A uh, a family friend. Wrote in a tweet, I spoke with her family members this morning. She's asking for your prayers at this time. Uh, 76 years old, she's had some significant health issues for the last several years, say 8 to 10 years, uh, that included an operation on a tumor at one point, uh, the threat of pancreatic cancer, although she denied it, and then what she called a miraculous recovery after a few years. So just a strange, strange story. Coming up next, uh, preseason fun. Did you catch any of the preseason games? I caught way too much of them because I was thirsty as hell for some football and, and watched a bunch of it. There was a fan that was able to do something that fans are not usually able to do. We'll tell you all about it when we come back. <laughs> I love this story. Look at that guy. He's just standing there. It's great. Gary and Shannon will continue in just a moment.
and Shannon on this Monday. It is August 13th. Bunch of stuff we're going to get to at Swamp Watch. Political, of course. Rudy Giuliani says the president will not sit for a special counsel interview after September 1st. Uh, an artificial deadline he has come up with. But he's saying that they don't want this to get anywhere close to the uh, November elections. So he's telling special counsel Robert Mueller, if you want it, you got to get it before the first. Another murder charge today. today uh... For the Golden State Killer, prosecutors up there in Visalia have added another murder charge against him, bringing the number of victims, murder victims, to 13. And then the, the TSA met with the FAA and SeaTac airport officials and Port of Seattle commissioners. They're all trying to figure out how they can make sure no one takes an airplane like we saw late Friday night when a guy, ground crew guy, jumped into a Horizon Air uh, Q400, a little 70-person uh, turbojet. And flew the thing around for 75 minutes before he augured into Keytron Island uh, out there near Stelicum, uh, Tacoma. You remember Vince Papali, right? Sure you the do. The Eagles, right? The Eagles. He was uh, a walk-on for the Eagles. There was a movie made all about it, and I'm forgetting the name of the movie. And I'll remember. Invincible. Invincible. Mark Wahlberg yep. portrayed him. He was a walk-on to the Philadelphia Eagles, I want to say sometime in the 70s. And it was like those fantasy dreams of adult that adult men have of getting to play a professional sport. You have that uh, for baseball. You know, you dream of putting on a uniform, getting out there. Being mistaken for someone else. Maybe. And just, ha- or just, hey, what are you doing in the third row? You're supposed to be out in left field. You know, some guys like T.O.'s like this. He thinks he can still play. You know, it's, it's a hard thing to realize that you've aged out of your of your beloved sport. I could give it a strong nine innings. Okay. I'll say that. Okay. But probably not two games in two days. I'd, okay. I'd be too sore. Yeah. <laughs> well, it looks like there was a man in Pittsburgh that wanted to live out his Vince Papali dream. <laughs> His dream of suiting up and playing with the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> it all happened at the turf practice field at St. Vincent, where the, the players were practicing on Saturday. The guy is seen in a football uniform. It is not the uniform that the Steelers typically wear. It's kind of similar, but he's got the Steelers helmet on, too. Okay, wait a minute. How could it not be a Steelers uniform? Can't you buy that off the rack? Can't you buy a... Yeah. I mean, an absolute, not even replica jersey, an actual jersey. Granted, you're going to pay 200 bucks for it, it was but you similar, can buy a jersey. It was similar enough to where it, he didn't stick out because of it. But the uniform number was remarkable. <laughs> now, there are so many people that participate in a team's training camp. There's, um, there's like a hundred and something guys. There's actually a lot of duplicate jerseys. Right. You know, I think on the Chargers right now, we've got, I think there's two number twos. I think one might be a, a punter and one is a quarterback. And we got a couple number fives. I think one is a kicker, one's a wide receiver. I mean, that's just how it works until the rosters are whittled down to 54. So usually if you could pick any uniform number, and it wouldn't be a problem right. because even if there was another guy with the same number, it happens. He picked a retired number. <laughs> Just he picked Troy Polamalu's number. I yeah. mean, Troy Polamalu is not that old. I mean, it, they just retired his number after the 2014 season. So 
it's not like you're going to be able to sneak out there. Right. And be like, wait, is that Troy Paul? No, that's not. Because if you look at this guy, the security, uh, the security agent that's next to him. I mean, and when I say security agent, he's wearing a T-shirt and khaki shorts and a radio. The security guy outweighs him by a good 30 pounds. He, he's like. not a big man. Not but at But you know all. what? A lot of the guys, and not a lot, but there are a number of guys that, that uh, report to training camp that are not your typical football physique <laughs> kind of guys. Okay. You know, there well, are some smaller guys that show up. There, there may have also been uh, the telltale pads that he was wearing because... The Steelers were not wearing pads for practice on Saturday. He's the only guy who strolls out there with pads on. It would be like going to Rams training camp and seeing number 29 running around. Exactly. Like, who's that? And why is he wearing Eric Dickerson's number? <laughs> but you know what? It, it, it laughed for, or it lasted for at least a little bit. Well, and it got to the point where Antonio Brown, one of the Steelers players, actually talked to this guy. I mean, you know, if you're one of the guys on the field, you know that guy doesn't belong here. Well, Antonio Brown was talking to him because he was amused by him. Right. He knew he had no place yes. being there. Yeah, uh, which was probably a pretty funny conversation. Now, the security, when they when they found him, uh, they just had a very s- casual conversation with him. After a few moments, uh, he jumps onto the back of the little security golf cart, and uh, he's whisked away from the practice field. The coach, Mike Tomlin, who I have never seen smile. No. Not was asked solid. about it. Yep. Hey, what about that one guy oh, who God. showed up Are you in serious? jersey? Are you serious? And right Mike now? Tomlin just said, I'll pass, and walked away. I thought it would have been great if, if this was the one thing that Mike Tomlin breaks over and just has fun with it, but not, not the case. That's too bad. Next time, dummy. Next no. time, get an actual jersey that would pass for what they're wearing that day. And if you see that they're not wearing pads... You take your pads off. Coming up next, Swamp Watch. We dive into all things Washington. A lot to talk about today. It's every day at 1230 right here. Coming up next. Ain't it funny how life changes. You wake up, ain't nothing the same. And life changes. You can't stop it, just hop on the train. You never know what's going to happen. You make your plans and you hear God laughing. Life changes. This Monday, it's August 13th. Market Monday is coming up at 1 o'clock. We have a bunch to get to with Rebecca Jarvis, including the story about Elon Musk. Uh, now we know it was probably some Saudi money that he was talking about when he was uh, referring to getting funding secured to take Tesla private. Uh, also, the uh, the chance for the Netflix uh, CFO to step down. I don't know if there's some problems there or if he's just, uh, he's had enough. He wants to go home and watch movies. Just, you know, chill. Aretha Franklin said to be seriously ill. Netflix and chill. That's not a thing anymore. Oh. Yeah, we don't say Netflix and chill. Chill's kind of passe. Oh, totally erase that then. It's all about no chill. What were you saying about Aretha Franklin? Um, Severely ill. Seriously ill, excuse me. Uh, People close to her say that uh, it's not looking good. She could be in her final days. Ugh. All right. It's time for Swamp Watch. Drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp of Washington. We're going to have fun doing it. We're all doing it together. Drain the swamp. Drain the swamp. Drain the swamp. 
Omarosa, the once very loyal aide to the president who was fired from the administration as an aide and has written a new tell-all book. And in this book are explosive allegations about her former boss. She has been running to anybody who will put her on the air about how he's a racist, how she heard him say the N-word on The Apprentice set, how his mental condition is deteriorating. And today the big headline was... Omarosa releases audio. I'd like, to, I'd like to see this be. Uh, Omarosa releases audio from a phone call she says she had in December with the president, a day after John Kelly fired her. Yeah. So, uh, because of my itchy trigger finger, you got a little preview there. Uh, but this is this is John Kelly, White House chief of staff. By the way, this meeting took a very long time, allegedly. She did an interview on MSNBC. They referred to this meeting with John Kelly having taken two hours. But she only released a few minutes of the uh, of the the meeting itself. But here's John Kelly explaining. We're going to do this very carefully. We have some guys from personnel here. There's a box of Kleenex. Let's keep this quiet. I'd like to see this be uh, uh, a friendly departure. Um, there are pretty significant uh, legal issues that we hope uh, don't develop into something that. Uh, that will make it ugly for you. Uh, but I think it's important to understand that if we make this a friendly departure, um, we can all be, you know, you can look at look at your time here in, in uh, the White House as a year of service to the nation, uh, and then you can go on without any type of uh, difficulty in the future relative to your reputation. But it's very, very important, I think, that you understand that there are some serious legal issues that have uh, been violated and um, you're, you're open to some legal action that uh, we hope, uh, I think we can control, right? Now, he's referring to some integrity issues, is another way he said it later on, where her use of government vehicles, money issues, and other things that in the military, since that's the world he came from, in the military could lead to court-martial. And he says, listen, we make this a friendly departure. You heard him say this. We can look at your time here as your service to the nation, and then you go on without any type of difficulty. So that was the day she was fired, escorted out of the White House. You remember that supposedly the Secret Service got involved. The only thing the Secret Service did was deactivate her, her pass card. So the next day she calls the president. And in this tape, it sounds like and it gives you kind of an insight into the president and how he wants to kind of maintain good relationships with everybody. And we've seen this with some of the people that the president has had contentious relationships with going back decades, whether it's Kim Jong-un or the president of China or the uh, the leader of Iran, he he tries to keep things cordial, things friendly. And in this clip, she's calling him to say, "Hey, what the heck happened?" And he's kind of saying, "Well, I didn't, I I didn't know anything about that. That's terrible." Uh, Marissa, what's going on? I just saw on the news that you're thinking about leaving. What happened? General Kelly, General what Kelly happened? came to me and said that you guys wanted me to leave. No, I, I, nobody even told me about it. Nobody, wow. you know, they run a big operation, but I didn't wow. know it. I didn't know that. Yeah. Damn it. I don't love you leaving at all. Um, and that's it. He's that's... trying to, like, keep the friendship, right? He doesn't want her to know that he was in on this at any point. Um, but now, since she left and is singing like a canary, all of these... Um... Speaking of canary, did you see that dress she wore on the Today Show today? Did not. Sorry. No. Yellow one-shoulder 
highly inappropriate. Oh, really? I mean, for four in the morning, it's not. I don't. You care wouldn't wear, wear that shade I of yellow never. at four. Um, so she fires back at her this morning with a tweet. And he says that she is vicious but not smart, claimed the people in the White House hated her. He said, Wacky Amorosa, who got fired three times on The Apprentice, now got fired for the last time. She never made it, never will. She begged me for a job, tears in her eyes. I said, okay. He said he would rarely see Amorosa in the White House. A claim that contradicts reports she enjoyed a close relationship with the president, according to the Washington Post. And I don't think that does contradict reports. I think the reason that she was there is because she did have a close relationship with the president from all the time they had with reality TV. That's why she was there, because of their friendship. She wasn't there because she was going to add anything to the administration. It it absolutely proves that they had a close relationship, because if they didn't, why else would she be there? Now, she said also in this interview on MSNBC that... She never planned to be in the White House for more than a year. That was that she had a self-imposed deadline, uh, that the thing had an expiration date, and that she would be out within a year. Now, obviously, John Kelly pulled that rug out from under her. Um, but it, it, what I don't understand is who is she making sound crazy here? I mean, the title of her book is Unhinged, right? Is she referring to him or is she referring to herself? Because it sounds him. to me, okay, uh, that may be the case. She's doing a better job of painting herself as unhinged in all of this. I think she is referring to him because so much of her talking point makeup is him going through some sort of dementia or something. She does refer to, in the book, she refers to him uh, from day one, I think is the phrase that she used, from day one, diminishing mental capacity from the day one that he took the job as president. And I don't. She's obviously had more contact than I had with him, but I don't think that she had great contact with him. And now we're talking about the possibility that she broke the law by recording things within the White House. I mean, there are specific areas in the White House that are not just a lobby or an office. There are situation room. You have to be um, you have to follow protocol when you go in there, which includes no recording devices. Is that why you put up signs outside our office today that say recording may be going on? I would just like to cover our bases. We're doing a new podcast, by the way. Yes. It's called the pre and post podcast. Yes. We will mic ourselves up pre-game and post-game of this show. And the stuff that comes out is, uh, it's not easy to hear. I'll tell you that. Coming up next. The other thing, it doesn't quite capture the football on the side of Blake's face. The sound that it made right. was was much more crystal clear than I think the microphones were able to pick Blake up. did take a football to the head this morning. I uh, thought he was looking. He was not. I kind of moved a little bit. I avoided the black eye. Right. Yeah. So the, I appreciate that because your mom would kill me. It just grazed. If I sent you home with a black eye. <laughs> more Swamp Watch when we come back to Gary and Shannon. Right in the middle of Swamp Watch, where we talk all things Washington. The FBI has fired Agent Peter Strzok. He was the guy who helped lead the Bureau's investigation into Russian interference in the election. And then we discovered he was sending those anti-Trump texts. Ali Rogan is on the story for us and joins us now live from Washington. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Sure. So uh, so they fired him. Was it specifically the texts that they uh, they referenced as to why he was fired? 
Yeah, it's basically the whole aura around Strzok. Um, he previously had been found by an FBI inspector general that he uh, he indicated that a willingness, they said, to take official action to prevent Trump from being president, although Strzok insisted that those texts, the famous, infamous one where he said, will stop Trump from being president, he said that was just kind of a, a private remark that wasn't meant to suggest he was going to do anything in his job uh, to make that happen. Uh, but the uh, the deputy director of the FBI basically decided uh, to that uh, that was enough to get him fired. Um, previously, the office that deals with FBI personnel, basically the FBI's HR department, had demoted him. He was working basically a clerical position, and he, uh, and that was his reprimand. But clearly, the deputy director believed that did not go far enough, and Strzok is now off the force. What was he doing in the meantime? Because he, once he got taken off the special counsel, um, he was working in HR, wasn't he? He was. He was working in the HR department, which is kind of ironic given um, the HR issues that surrounded him. Um, as I'm sure you know, he was uh, carrying on an affair with another lawyer who was on the special counsel investigation Um that wasn't the the major focus, of course. Uh, maybe from a PR, an HR perspective, it would be. But the issue was that they were discussing their disdain for uh, then candidate Trump, uh, and they were both taken off the case around the same time. They were both removed uh, in July of 2017, uh, and then the following June, so just a couple months ago, is when that big DOJ Inspector General report came out that showed that. You know, he may have been making comments that were, uh, you know, inappropriate for an FBI agent to be making, but that he didn't indicate any sort of willingness to do anything in his capacity uh, as uh, an FBI official to change the course of the election. And Strzok has argued, and so have his lawyers, that if he really wanted to disrupt the course of the election and dis you know, derail President Trump, he could have revealed the existence of the of the investigation during the campaign. And he didn't do that. Hey, across the river, uh, Paul Manafort. Uh, sorry, that was totally unintentional. Paul Manafort's trial. Yes. Say it too fast. <laughs> uh, is it looks like the um, prosecutors are going to rest their case. Yeah, so we expect the prosecutors to wrap up today. They had been speaking with uh, one um, – they had one bank official left to go who oversaw two of the phony loans that were given to Paul Manafort to the tune of $16 million. And then they're going to make their closing arguments and rest their case – or excuse me, they're going to rest their case. Uh, and then the defense is expected to begin as early as this afternoon. It's about 4 o'clock on the East Coast, and typically the court's been wrapping up uh, around 7 o'clock in the evening. They got a late start today as well, around 1 p.m. We expect that the judge is going to be asking uh, the lawyers from Manafort whether they have any – or what evidence they want to submit in order to uh, have the jury peruse. Uh, we don't know. We expect them to call witnesses, but we don't know exactly how many. And we do not know at this point whether Paul Manafort himself is going to take the stand. Ali Rogan, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. President Trump over the weekend went after Jeff Sessions again. Do you see this on Saturday? Tweeting that Sessions was scared stiff and missing in action in defending him amid special counsel Bob Mueller's investigation into possible ties between the Trump campaign and Russia. 
It went after uh, Christopher Steele as well. That was the former British intelligence officer that was at the uh, the center, I guess you could say, of the Trump dossier situation. And this is apparently because of some murmurings that the Republican chairman of the House Judiciary Committee is getting ready for subpoenas to subpoena people connected to the Steele dossier. Uh, Trump has gone after Sessions for this whole mess a lot before. Uh, earlier this month, he said the attorney general should stop the investigation right now. Remember, though, Sessions recused himself. Yes. uh, And that wasn't an official policy, according to the White House. It was just the president's opinion. Yes. Uh, And then also this little bit I found to be entertaining that White House aides must regularly tell President Trump not to call foreign leaders at odd hours. They say this is a diplomatic faux pas, you know, just picking up the phone at, you know, one o'clock on a a Monday in Washington when it's it's you know, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. Exactly. <laughs> that would be <laughs> uh, sources close to Trump told Politico that the president often proposes phone calls with world leaders like Shinzo Abe at times when they would likely be asleep. When he wants to call someone, he wants to call someone. He's very impulsive that way. Uh, The president today also signed a $716 billion defense policy bill after he delivered uh, remarks at Fort Drum. Uh, This is significant. It will boost military pay by 2.6 percent. That's the largest hike that military pay has seen in about nine years. Also addresses child-on-child sexual assault at U.S. military bases worldwide. I've never heard of that term before. Child-on-child sexual assault at U.S. military base. Hmm. Um, There's no money in there for the Space Force, but it does authorize that military parade that he wants on November 11th uh, or on Veterans Day, um, which I believe, yes, it is November 11th. Duh. But you know what's interesting is the president signed this bill today named after Senator John McCain. You know the three words he never said today at Fort Drum in New York? Senator John McCain? Yeah. Yeah. Coming up next, Market Mondays. Rebecca Jarvis will join in the fun. We're going to be talking about shakeups at Tesla, at Netflix, and how the stock market has responded to that turkey mess. And I'm not talking about gobble, gobble. (laughs) (laughs) You've been waiting for that all day. No, no, no. I just walked into it. Oh, okay. I just walked right into it. Excellent. I'm going to go home. Gary and Shannon will continue right after this. If you feel it, could you let me know? AM640, fire crews are making progress against that holy fire out there in the Lake Elsinore Corona area. 23,000 acres over the past week, this fire has eaten up. Thousands of people were forced from their homes. A retirement community, active retirement community, is under voluntary evacuation orders today. But to been told, hey, you may be told to get out and go. Uh, they're they're holding another press conference right now in Iowa of uh, the Molly Tibbetts investigation. We've told you so many times about the University of Iowa student who went missing a couple of weeks ago. And uh, there's nothing new as far as what they've said so far. They're just asking for patience from people. 
That's an odd reason to have a news conference. Well, they're asking now for details, any details in the week leading up to her disappearance. Any people or vehicles in the area, even if it's something that you think is not important, it could be wildly important. They are scrambling in this investigation. Uh, The other story that we we are following is that Aretha Franklin uh, is not doing well. Family friends have said that she is in grave condition at a hospital in Detroit. She's uh, 76 years old and a couple of different times has had some serious health issues uh, over the last 10, uh, 12 years or so. One o'clock on Mondays means Market Mondays with Rebecca it's Jarvis. It's Market Monday on Gary and Shannon. Because everyone loves money. And alliteration sounds great on the radio. Rebecca, I have to tell you something. During the break... During Amy's news, Gary runs into our office and he says, I'm cleaning this place up. And he started throwing out a bunch of our stuff. <laughs> like he just got this wild hair to, to clean house. You, and he started throwing. Yeah, he well, threw out a Frisbee. He threw out um, a perfectly good shopping bag. Rebecca, canvas you've, you've seen bag. our office. And I, I would just imagine that, that cleanliness was not the first word that jumped to your mind when you saw our office. You know what I love that Shannon got upset that he threw out a canvas shopping. No, bag hold on because... a second. No, wait, 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 wait. The legitimate. I mean, this is this was exactly a scene out of the TV show Hoarders, where I threw it away, <laughs> and she grabbed it out of the garbage and said the words that every hoarder says: "This is a perfectly good garbage <laughs> bag." It is though, Shannon. Okay, so I I'm on both of your sides on this one because my mom is she loves those canvas bags and she goes to conferences all the time and gets them and I'm always like mom how many of these do you really need so I totally emphasize Shannon I feel you I love my mom but I also am like mom come on it's true I have so many of those damn things but I just can't see why you would want to throw it away it's hard because there is some value but I also think that like there's minus value in your life when there's too much clutter and you can't find the things you actually need and you can't you know work in an environment that's a little bit free of the crazy this is an intervention <laughs> a isn't little it bit free this of is the an inter you guys planned yes. this uh, that's, very, that's why I had to wait until one o'clock to do it uh, all right it. Rebecca let's uh, let's start with this this issue of Turkey and why we saw it drag down the Dow a hundred plus points today. Yeah, I mean, I think that investors are generally just going to be more cautious when you have an issue like Turkey out there, uh, an unsettled economy. The currency, the Turkish lira, has been in crisis mode. You have Erdogan, the, the leader of Turkey, calling on the people in his country to convert dollars into Turkish lira. They're now investigating um, Twitter accounts for people in the country who were talking down the Turkish lira. This is just not the kind of world. Uh, it, it's a moment in the world where it just there's a, there's always going to be that fear of contagion, and there's always going to be that fear that it imposes additional risks on the overall system, and that is dragging down uh, the overall market. This was uh, with the Turkish lira falling. We saw last week with the uh, imposition of new sanctions against Russia, the Russian ruble also fell to a level it hadn't seen in a couple of years. Uh, is this, you know, international foreign foreign currencies like this falling, is that necessarily translating to good news for the strength of the American dollar? It can, but th- those are not the 
the main currencies. When it comes to the world of currencies, those aren't going to be the main currencies that we're marking against the U.S. dollar. It's the euro, uh, it's the pound, it's uh, China's, econ uh, China's currency. Uh, so, so those are the main ones in, if you're looking at the global economy, but it still matters. And therefore, it's, uh, you know, the, the increase in the dollar, dollar strength versus those currencies could be perceived, I mean, it can be perceived as a strong thing for um, the U.S. economy versus their economies. But I think it, it, the, the whole question right now is more where does it go from here? Is there the risk of contagion in other parts of the world? Um, and, and just this idea of there's the unnecessary risk in this moment where if things are just kind of plodding along, acceptably in the United States, in the U.S. economy, having a, an economy that we do a very, very, very minor amount of business with, however, that could have contagion to other economies where we do significant business with, and that just puts pressure on the world economy. That's the fear. The scandal over Elon Musk's tweet about taking Tesla private had just got bigger. Tell us about that. Yes. So last week, Tuesday, Elon Musk tweets about taking his company private. And one of those tweets says, funding secured. That's exactly what it said in quotation marks, funding secured. So today he puts out this letter uh, that says, so why did I say funding secured? Because ultimately, people took that tweet last Tuesday to mean that, well, of course, then he has somebody who has signed on the dotted line who says, yep, we're willing to take you private. Well, it sounds as though he's had a lot of conversations to that effect, but the dotted line hasn't been signed on. He came out today, wrote this letter, and said, going back almost two years, the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund has approached me multiple times about taking Tesla private. They first met with me at the beginning of 2017 to express this interest uh, because of the important need to diversify away from oil. But the bottom line here is they don't have the exact agreed-upon terms, and there are those who are now saying, well, wait a minute, you might have broken an SEC rule about public announcements because uh, the, the way that the, that the SEC works, you can't tweet something like that or share something like that as the executive of a publicly traded company if it isn't factual, if it isn't 100 percent factual. Is there any chance that really he's going to get in trouble for this, though? Yeah, I, I, I see your point. I, I, I kind of agree with that point. We'll see. I mean, there's always going to be the gray area of interpretation, and uh, my assumption would be that all of the lawyers involved will figure out that gray area. Rebecca, can you hang on? I want to talk to you about Netflix and the shakeup in their front office. Let's do it. Awesome. Market Excellent. Monday with Rebecca Jarvis continues after this. Gary and Shannon will be right back. So when I say what I'm Sorry, we were a little late getting back into the studio because Gary's throwing everything away. Not true. In the middle of the show, you've decided to be Mr. Hoarder, anti-hoarder guy. Not concentrate some of that energy on finding the compliment ball. Oh, yeah. Let's keep talking about this, and my wife's going to make me clean up when I get home. Uh, we are in the middle of Market Monday. We're talking with Rebecca Jarvis uh, about what's been going on when it comes to the world of money and markets and that sort of thing. And we find out... That the uh, CFO for Netflix, David Wells, is going to step down. What's going on with that? Yeah, so it, it's he's a 14-year veteran of the company. 
It sounds like this is a more planned event than sometimes. You know, it, it doesn't feel like he's been shown the door here. Um, he spent all of these years on the job. He's been the CFO since 2010, and he's going to help find his successor. He's a really important part of this company, and that's an important thing for people to think about. He's overseen some of the most significant growth inside of the company, and therefore that's why there's some trepidation. You know, anytime somebody who's been important to a story and to a company doing particularly well takes an exit, there's always going to be um, some trepidation on the part of investors because of how significant that individual has been to the company and the hope that whatever their, whoever their replacement is will be just as good. Will you, are you as cynical as I am? Because when he says he wants to focus on philanthropy, <laughs> I, it makes me think that something's gone really wrong. Yeah, I mean, see, I, I'm not going to rush to judgment because – I can imagine that if you've been in that role for as long as he has um, and the company has done as well as it has, that uh, you know what, maybe you have that moment in your life where you think there are bigger things than this, and if I don't leave now, when will I? If not now, when? Like throwing out things in the office. If not today, then when? <laughs> uh, I think today is the day. Gary's going to have a hard time with this. Today may have been the day that yoga pants became the new denim. Really? I know. This is a little sad, right? So Lee and Wrangler um, jeans are going to be spun off from the VF core so that VF core can focus on its active and lifestyle brands like the North Face and Jansport because people are really into that active wear workout related stuff. And the denim category hasn't been as high growth recently. So they're, they're, um, they're, the yoga pants are shaking up the industry. <laughs> I, was, I was at an outlet mall yesterday with my daughter for some back to school shopping. And the places that were the busiest um, were the ones that were selling exercise stuff. That is very not interesting. just for exercise anymore. No. I mean, we've seen the yoga pants infiltrate the office. Why are we now? You're gonna make... How do you feel about that? I hate it. I mean, listen, I don't have a problem with yoga pants in general. Uh, that's not my thing. My thing is you you are at work, and unless you're working at Lululemon. Why do you need to wear yoga pants? Or you're unless, a yoga instructor. Yeah, I mean, unless I'm going to or from yoga or some sort of fitness class where I'm wearing them, I, like, if I go to the market on my way home, I'll put a sweatshirt around my waist. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, I definitely, I, on a weekend, I have been known to sport the workout wear to and from and run some errands around the gym time. Totally fine. I you would never but you Rebecca you would never envision doing that to work unless we were doing um a workout segment in which they <laughs> might force on me as right. uncomfortable as that would make me right <laughs> yeah no I um I probably wouldn't do work I, I do think you know the rules around work and how you dress for work have definitely changed over the years since I started I used to feel like I had to wear a suit to work every day and I did I had this suit. My husband called it micro dot because it had like little dots all over it. It was really hideous, but I wore <laughs> I did too. I used to wear suits all the time to work. They were the thing, right? Yeah. I, I have enough blazers to, I don't even right. know so what the, to do. Colorful blazer. Yeah. The, yeah. The colorful blazer was like the mark of all young female journalists. I would go to TJ Maxx and Marshall's and get totally. so excited if they had not black blazers on super sale. It was like I hit the jackpot I with know. the blazer. <laughs> 
one other topic I wanted to ask you about was uh, one of the side, I don't know, side casualties, I suppose, of this ongoing trade war, especially our trade war with, with China, is Chinese-made vaping devices and the impact it's going to have on you smoking your pot. Isn't this just painful? I mean, imagine <laughs> that, the world that we live in today. So anyway... Nine states, including D.C., now legal recreationally, 30-plus, including D.C., medically legal. But these Chinese-made vaping devices are the, uh, the, the, the tool with which some consume their cannabis. And as a result of that, uh, they could really be in jeopardy if the duties go into place in September Prices could be higher within a month. And these, I mean, I, I didn't know this stat, but some of these vaping devices can be up to $500. So that could be a pretty significant um, increase in price. There's obviously edibles and a handful of other things. I was wondering if, if those in the edible industry would double down on this and make this their major opportunity. Yeah, get your foot in the door there now. And, uh, you know, because you don't have to have, I mean, never mind. I was going to make a, a joke about chopsticks that they make them in China. Who am I? Oh, dear. Am well, I my own grandfather me... now? That's just the stupidest. I'm ashamed well, of it, myself. Well, at least you have some self-awareness to be ashamed of yourself. You know? That's good. That's good. You know what I thought when I was looking at this story? Um, what was incredible to me is that by 2022, so four years from now, we're looking at $20 billion a year in legal marijuana sales wow. in this country. That's not even the Basically. illegal stuff. Yeah. Yeah. $20 billion. And this is an industry that, like, 10 years ago, was you know, you weren't doing it legally. So $20 billion legally. That's amazing. Rebecca, what's coming up on No Limits, the podcast? Okay. So if you are trying to raise money uh, for your business, you want to listen to this week's episode of No Limits. We have Annie Lamont on. She is a venture capitalist on the Midas list, one of the uh, top venture capitalists in the country. And we talk all about the biggest mistakes people make when pitching her, when your company is right for going after venture capital money. I think it's a really useful conversation because so much of the time we hear from companies who have had to go through fundraising, but rarely do we hear from those on the other side who have the money to give. So, who are they going to give it to and why? That is what we talk about. Rebecca, thank you for your time again. Thank you. Have a great week, you guys. You and I too. Your office is super clean. <laughs> oh, man. Pick and span. It's you not betcha. right. It's not right. <laughs> uh, don't forget, you can re- you can follow Rebecca on social media. Just look up Rebecca Jarvis, J-A-R-V-I-S. You follow her on Twitter and Instagram as well. That was a perfectly good Frisbee. Are you going to throw out all the games? No. you going to throw out the football? No. Or the, the basketball? No. All right. I'm going to throw out the jacket the, that you haven't worn in 14 years, but for some reason made its way into the office. If you throw away the Pecs bat, we're really going to have a problem. No, I'm we'll not, lock them out tomorrow. Away. We'll lock them out of the office I'm if not he throws away the Pecs bat. There was a stack of papers from a show that doesn't even exist anymore on this radio station That's sitting in one of, of our boxes. a piece of KFI history. Right, so I took it down to the KFI historian and made him put it away. We have one of those? Yes. Gary and Shannon, KFI, coming up next, the greatest generation unfortunately gave rise inadvertently to the golden age of serial killers. We'll tell you all about it. Gary Channel will continue.
Gary and Shannon, on this Monday, some of the stories we're keeping an eye on today, Omarosa had released phone call tapes, um, one with the president, actually, that took place a day after she was fired by White House Chief of Staff John Kelly. She also said she had a tape of that meeting, and in the meeting with the uh, the phone call with the president, he apparently says he had no idea that this was coming. Uh, although John Kelly, when he laid out the reasons for her firing, said that there were some uh, some questions of integrity for her. President Trump questioning whether Bob Mueller's investigation will be dropped now that the FBI has fired one of Mueller's former investigators, Peter Strzok. Uh, the answer is no. The answer is no, probably. <laughs> Um, and then the big meeting today up in Seattle, SeaTac airport officials, airline officials that use that airport, the TSA, the FAA, everybody got together to try to answer questions about how this ground crew guy was able to pilot a plane, was able to take off and fly around the Puget Sound area for about an hour and 15 minutes before he eventually put that thing into the ground at uh, um, Friday night. Peter- and just a strange, strange story. Peter Vronsky is an investigative historian. He teaches history at Ryerson University in Toronto. And his third book is out. It's called Sons of Cain, A History of Serial Killers from the Stone Age to the Present. This book catalogs 17,000 years of homicidal maniacs from Cain to Jack the Ripper to the Green River Killer. It is exhaustive. And he tried to find reasons behind the atrocities he was taking a look at. Specifically, what was behind the huge number of serial killers we had from 1950 to 2000? And his hypothesis is that it was a broken generation of soldiers returning from World War II, that these were traumatized fathers who had returned home from battlefields in Europe and the Pacific and that there was this generation of murderous emotional cripples. I think your hypothesis is more accurate. That this was a time when we had all come together for the war effort. And everybody was getting along because we had this shared goal to beat the Nazis and the whole bit, right? We were galvanized against the greater evil. And, you know, women were going to work in the factories and they're playing baseball and the, the roles were changing. We were all doing our part. For the war effort. Mm-hmm. And I think it did give the country a false sense of security. And that when you have a false sense of security, you're more likely to have criminals that take advantage and you're more likely to become victimized. Well, that's, you know, I, I would say, though, that that while we were galvanized, while we were fighting for a common uh, good, that th- th- nobody suffered I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but nobody would stand up for anything like this and fewer people would perpetrate this. I mean, the idea of boiling this down to just daddy issues is a strange way to put it, but he does have some compelling evidence. Um, This guy researched serial killers and he talked about a dramatic rise in serial homicides starting from the 70s through the 80s and 90s. And having been alive in most of the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, I should say all of the 80s and 90s, uh, I remember there being sort of a, a fascination. And, and the one I remember most vividly was the Night Stalker. Even in Northern California, it wasn't really a possibility that we were under threat. But I remember people talking about painting their homes, changing the color of their homes, because 
this Night Stalker guy was only going into yellow homes or something like that. I remember that being a very, very top-of-mind subject. And what this guy says is we've made all sorts of theories about why that is, why the 70s, 80s, and 90s were really the heyday for serial killers. And often we associate it with what was happening in the United States. Increased violence of the 60s, a new kind of hedonism in the 70s. And he said that he went back to... Well, he had to go back to their early life, these killers' early lives, often as early as five. And he says, I I thought about that and realized that I needed to back up because the average age for a serial killer is 25. And he says, when I did that, I started to look back at the birth dates. And he says he realized they were all being raised either during the Second World War or immediately after the Second World War. And he says because the familial life is so important in the making of a serial killer, he says you have to look at the fathers. You know, uh, he goes into – I think we'll come when we come back, we'll talk about his conclusion about what happened with those guys who went to war and what they brought back because it's, it's an interesting look at the way humans – Fight. He's also predicting another wave of serial killers thanks to the stock market crash of 08. I don't know if I'm in line with this. I mean, I know I'm not in line with this, but uh, it is fascinating. Yeah, again, this is a book by Peter Vronsky, Sons of Cain, A History of Serial Killers from the Stone Age to the Present. It talks about 17,000 years of serial killers. Uh, Jack the River, Green Jack the Ripper, and the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway, and a bunch of others. So, we'll talk about this when we come back to the Gary and Shannon Show. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM six forty. It looks like. Prosecutors in Florida have decided to charge that white man who shot the black man over a parking spot dispute and claimed it was uh, because of stand your ground, uh, self-defense law, that he was innocent uh, of anything. Prosecutors today charging him with manslaughter, saying that this was a guy who threatened three other drivers previously. Uh, One of the stories coming out of D.C. is that Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, has said the president will not sit for a special counsel interview with Robert Mueller uh, after September 1st. That if he wants to have the president sit down and talk, that they're going to have to do it before September 1st. Still some uh, weirdness about this because it's totally manufactured deadline on Rudy Giuliani's behalf. But Robert Mueller now has the pressure, uh, his team at least has the pressure to try to, if they're going to subpoena the president, if they're going to ask him to answer questions, that they want to do that quicker because they don't want to be perceived as having had any impact in the November election. Also, we didn't get to these stories. We have a kind of a small stack of stories here that are truly terror in the skies. And we didn't get to them. Maybe we'll do them tomorrow. That's a great idea. Tuesday terror in the skies? Yeah. Tuesday. Tuesday terror on... Um, we'll workshop it. When we, uh, we've been talking about this book called Sons of Cain, A History of Serial Killers from the Stone Age to the Present, a guy, Peter Vronsky, uh, put them together. And he was doing an exhaustive history of serial killers, he says, go, starting with Cain and coming all the way up to today and pointing to 
the fathers of these serial killers as being a key factor in determining what went wrong with these kids early on. The fathers were coming home from war and uh, the parenting was not first and foremost. Yeah, and I, you know, clearly he would say this is not the majority of, of people. The majority of people, the majority of sons of veterans did not turn out to be serial killers. But when you add a few things together, maybe there is a common thread that you could sort of suss out from it. So he's looking at the regular GIs coming back from the from World War II or from the Korean War or even Vietnam. And he's talking about the style of war fighting, the style where we're, we're fighting an almost genocidal war because we were fighting genocidal perpetrators. So we had to rise to the level or lower ourselves to the level, however you want to look at it, to fight that war. And a lot of these guys come back from war traumatized with no outlet for that because it wasn't until well after the Vietnam War that we started to actually talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and treatment for that. Um, you've heard the commercial here on the air where we talk, the guy talks about uh, war shock and war neurosis. That's what they called it, but they just said basically, here's the GI Bill, go to college, rub some dirt on it, get back into society, and we don't have to talk about it anymore. One of the most chilling prospects in this book is the argument that all humans are genetically hardwired to become serial killers and that we have to be unmade into law-abiding citizens. He says that Mother Nature intended all of us to be unrepentant murderers in the wild before civilization took shape. We were adept at violence. It was a prerequisite for survival in the wild. Isn't it funny how we gravitate towards shows where we violent, have to yeah. be violent to survive, like Game of Thrones and, and stuff like that? I think there's a uh, natural inherent an itch in there somewhere yeah. that you've got to scratch, and somehow we do that through entertainment, as weird as that sounds. This theory of the brain was first proposed in the 60s by a neuroscientist at, at Yale. And it says that driving the murderous impulse in us is a small knot at the base of the brain called the basal ganglia, also known as the R-complex or the reptilian brain. Ah, see? Tickle your lizard brain. Exactly. He says, like an archaeological site, our brains consist of temporal layers, three separate brains from different eras of our evolutionary past, stacked and wired together in parallel loops. Each layer more ancient, more primitive than the next. And that the most primitive part of our brain regulates the four F's, fleeing, fighting, feeding, and, and F, um, effing. effing. That, that's, uh, he that's says if F's. any one of those instincts goes astray, the species will ultimately become extinct. So that's why the brains keep cultivating those F's. And listen, we're not that far away from this being our uh, our recent past. We're not that far away from this. A hundred years ago, if you lived in the city of Los Angeles a hundred years ago, you knew how to use a gun or you knew somebody who did. So few people now, because it was a life and death sort of thing, and probably I would say maybe not you know in the city, but on the outskirts in the different areas around what now make up Southern California metropolitan area – you knew how to use a gun because it was a safety thing. And, in, you know, at times it was a life and death thing. 
Not that you necessarily had to kill other people to stay alive, but you had to use it as a tool. And to me, this is it's it makes perfect sense that these four F's, lean, fighting, feeding, and effing, are incredibly strong powers still within us. When food was scarce in the Stone Age, he says, we sometimes combined what we killed in fear and anger with what we killed for food. And sometimes even that with what we had sex with. Okay. He gets really dark. He says, this is coded into our DNA. It's like a bug in an updated piece of software. And once in a while, that bug pops up as like a piece of coding and that we're all sons of Cain. Listen, one of the things. We are all serial killers. Yeah. One of the things, one of the sidelights, I think, that he that he points out in terms of the the second stream of of consciousness that went into manufacturing these serial killers from the '60s and '70s and '80s was the True Detective magazines, the men's magazines from men's adventure magazines. And this guy says that he remembers the imagery on those magazines, and I can conjure up a couple of them. You know, hand painted pictures of a damsel in distress, oh, yeah. right, where some big bosomed woman with her hair and makeup done almost perfectly is in tatters because she's tied up and about to be victimized in some way. And what he says is that the covers were not pornographic. And I'm going to read his quote, which I think makes it worse because pornography relieves your imagination. He says these true crime detective and adventure magazines, uh, you had to take the next step inside your mind. So in those magazines, they celebrated the bondage of women, the torture of women. Um, and each each one always had a woman bound in a disheveled state. So it's almost as if the person looking at the magazine cover is looking at this woman who's about to be victimized. Now, my mentality when I think of those magazines is not I'm going to victimize that woman. It's that woman needs to be saved. Right. Right. So there's something different between the the way this guy, this Peter Vronsky guy, was looking at those magazines and the way I'm looking at the magazines, which may be why I don't spend uh, the majority of my life researching serial killers to get sort of the relief that he's looking for. Yeah, there's something to be said for that, yeah. I think, as well, uh, an infatuation with serial killers. I mean, I've been fascinated by serial killers, too. But not to where I'm going to dedicate my life's worth to figure work to figure, figuring out. It's too how gross. it all happens. There's, you got to wrap your head around some pretty dark stuff. Yeah. It's like reading a Gillian Flynn book. It is all day, every day. It is dark, <laughs> it is. dark, dark stuff. Oh, and he didn't really get into the mothers in all of this. I mean, his his point here was to try to look at you know the impact of the fathers. But a lot of these serial killers also had really overbearing mothers in a lot of mm. cases. And if it's an overbearing – the combination of an overbearing mother and a non-existent or emotionally distant father, then then maybe you've got sort of the magical soup to make somebody crazy. I like that. There you go. Magical crazy soup. Hmm. Sounds like a tattoo. Coming up next. Who is coming up next? Is it John and Ken? I believe so. Okay. Well, it's just, you know, people have been taking vacations, and uh, I don't know. Handel's going to be back tomorrow. That's what I heard. Yeah. Jet lagged is all get out, probably. Oh, it's going to be funny. I can't wait to hear it. He's going to think it's four in the afternoon. Right. And by 8.30, he's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> all right. We'll see you tomorrow. John and Ken coming up. We'll see you tomorrow. Stay dry, everybody. Well, goodbye. And don't think it hasn't been a little slice of heaven, because it hasn't. Gary and Shannon.